who has not been adapted that I ha- that I have uh, can recall into the live action versions. Probably because he was his- in the first one. He was. Oh wow. Mm-hmm. Who who played him? Uh, I don't remember, but he didn't wear the uniform, which is probably why you don't remember him. Oh, if he didn't wear the uniform, is he Boomerang? Is he Digger Harkness? If he doesn't talk in a comically broad Australian accent and occasionally go on racist tirades, and so so we enjoy it when he gets beat up, is it Digger Harkness? Welcome to Behind the Yellow Boxes, your one-stop comics history podcast. I'm Steph, your co-host and friendly neighborhood archivist. And I'm Brooke, your not-so-friendly, self-declared comics expert. We're two comic nerds with a lot of opinions, and we think it's important to know your history if we want to understand why comics are the way they are. And after several years of what-if questions circling among comic fans and cinemaphiles alike, James Gunn's take on the classic DC villain team, the Suicide Squad, has finally come to screens, both big and silver, and small and portable, and has generally received the positive reviews and acclaim that were severely lacking in the last cinematic effort. You know it's bad when the fans of that version aren't clamoring for a hashtag release the air cut. Give it time. Yeah, I really shouldn't have spoken that into existence, should I? Of course, while the last decade has been asking what James Gunn's take on the Suicide Squad would look like in the comic sphere, the idea of a Black Ops supervillain team has been around since the 1980s and has had several reinventions over the years under several different pens. So many, it would take hours to go over every one. So, for this week's episode, we decided instead to once again, take you through an abridged history of the Suicide Squad in the comics, its most prominent tropes, and, of course, the woman of steel will herself, Dr. Amanda Waller. And to be clear, Brooke and I are huge fans of Amanda Waller. Really huge fans. And a lot of the time, our opinions on the way that Suicide Squad is being written will go hand-in-hand with the way that Waller is portrayed. A few exceptions, nonwithstanding. We're also going to have some fun at the tail end of this episode and devise our own dream team for the squad. Though, it might be hard to think of a team without certain characters who are all but synonymous with the squad at this point. So, until then, let's get the ball rolling, starting with the surprising origins of the Suicide Squad. Classic comic book creators Robert Kaniger and Ross Andrew first envisioned a version of the Suicide Squad in September 1959 issue of The Brave and the Bold. In it, the Suicide Squad is formed not by supervillains forced into reform and danger, but by various members of the United States Air Force, including someone who will become something of a squad staple, Rick Flagg. Only this one is Rick Flagg Sr., The team is put together for what they imagine to be a suicide mission, taking on an unknown and deadly threat in the form of a red tidal wave, which burns and melts everything it comes across. So searingly hot, it turns even the sand it touches to glass. This was quite a departure from Kaniger's and Andrew's other work together in the Silver Age Wonder Woman books, or Kaniger's own seminal work in the creation of Barry Allen and the Silver Age itself. 
While there were some high-octane silliness in the Suicide Squad's six-issue storyline, like the military attempting to use foam bombs to cool off the red wave. In general, it was a lot more deadly, a lot more high stakes, and a lot more dour than most comics of the era. All the same, as a Silver Age story, ultimately the Suicide Squad of the 50s and 60s had a lot more optimism and positivity than we will get in later years. As it turns out, the red wave is being caused by, of course, a giant red lizard monster in the ocean that they can shoot up and stop. Which they do, and the general public, which knows about the squad, cheer accolades toward the brave heroes who were willing to sacrifice everything for the greater good. Those as aspects of the team will become increasingly sparse as the rather obscure team gets swept away by the Comics Code Authority, as even the name Suicide Squad becomes CCA unfriendly. And the next time we will see the team is in the 1980s, and they will be lacking both the public acclaim and the willingness to sacrifice themselves. Which takes us to the two names most associated with Suicide Squad as we know it today, John Ostrander and Kim Yell. In the January 1987 issue of Legends, an ongoing series published by DC in the aftermath of Crisis on Infinite Earths as something of an attempt to map out the new continuity of their universe. Ostrander wrote the first Suicide Squad story since 1960, but the team was very different than its initial beginnings. It's also the version you might recognize. Rather than a team of willing patriots prepared to sacrifice everything in the name of their country and fellow man, this Suicide Squad, also known as Task Force X, or Task Force 10, depending on how we're saying it today. This Suicide Squad was almost entirely filled with known supervillains across the DC universe, employed forcefully by a neural bomb implanted in their heads, which could be detonated at any point by the true mastermind of this team, Dr. Amanda Waller. We're going to spend a lot of time focusing on Waller, Rightfully so, but it's worth pointing out early on what an amazing breath of fresh air a character like Waller was to the DC Universe at the time, and honestly still now. The goal of the DC Universe after Crisis on Infinite Earths was to construct a more cohesive continuity and a world with its own internal logic. And nothing more perfectly exemplifies that than a character like Waller, whose grit and philosophy feels like a perfectly realistic and necessary reaction to living in a world with literal gods and goddesses walking among common people. The governments would react to this world in this way. And while Waller being original creation for Estrander and co-creator John Byrne made the choice to have Amanda be a middle-aged black woman who was stout and short and seemingly the very last image someone would imagine when it comes to having the entire DC Universe's underpinnings under her control. She also had a rich and wonderfully in-depth backstory and internal life before even being involved in the squad or government, which informs and accentuates her choices in life. We told you we were going to gush about Waller. How could we not? She's my favorite fictional war criminal. But that takes us into the various iterations of the squad itself. Like we said at the top, we won't be going into every single version of the team, but a brief overview with extra attention to some of our favorites. 
If we skip over a take on the team that you particularly like, feel free to start a conversation with us on Twitter, Patreon, or any of our other platforms to get a conversation going. So, obviously, we have to start with the 1987 Suicide Squad book with Ostrander and Yale. It's not the version we think of today. It's not the version we'll see in the pages of a modern Suicide Squad comic. It's missing quite a few characters from what we would think of as a Suicide Squad book just by default of they don't exist yet. Harley Quinn is still eight years out, something like that. At least eight years. Eight years from her creation in Batman the Animated Series, but over a decade from uh, her first appearance in the mainstream comics. It's also... It's also worth noting that the cohesiveness of the story writing has a lot to do with the fact that Ostrander and Yale worked together pretty much in tandem from the start. They were life partners and respected each other's work and loved each other dearly and had the same sense of internal politics of the DC universe as well as a drive to see certain characters develop in a way. So in some sense, Suicide Squad kind of becomes a love letter to their partnership. Yeah, we start with the team with the team of characters who some of which are recognizable today, some of which have kind of fallen out of favor. We start off with Rick Flagg Jr., son of the original Rick Flagg. Which also gives him a sort of a personal drive to see success in the Suicide Squad, because it is a team, no matter how, uh, pardon the French, bastardized it becomes over the years, it's kind of his inheritance. And he's kind of obsessed with maintaining his own family's legacy. Then we have Deadshot, portrayed by Will Smith in the first movie. He has not returned for the second one, which is odd because Deadshot is, again, one of the most popular characters on Suicide Squad and has appeared on most iterations of the team. And in fact, even uh, in the DC Animated Universe, his interactions with the team is kind of one of the backbones of how all the other team members work together. We also have Captain Boomerang. Then we had June Moon, the Enchantress, Eve Eden, Nightshade. Poison Ivy was on it for a while. As was the Penguin, of all people. He was their, like, logistics contact for a little while. There was also Punch and Julie, who were kind of like the proto-Joker and Harley, but not as dangerous. There was also Lashina from the female furies but she didn't know that she was lashina and was going by duchess uh and dr light was on it and we also very notably for fans who might have a bit more of a heroic preference have characters such as ben turner aka bronze tiger there was also vixen aka marie jiwe who fans of the arrowverse might remember and then there is Roy Harper, a.k.a. Red Arrow, a.k.a. Arsenal, a.k.a. Speedy, who was there. There is a huge rotating cast throughout the years. In case this listing didn't tip you off. The nominal Suicide Squad is not called Suicide Squad in-universe. When it is referred to the suic as a Suicide Squad, it's more of a almost a laughing homage of people realizing what this group is used for. In-universe, like Steph said earlier, they go by either Task Force X or Task Force 10, which is a black ops 
American project that is very hush-hush about what it's doing and operates out of the Belle Reve prison in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. It is also in-universe and approved program by President Ronald Reagan himself. This is explicit. There, and it is very political in its commentary. Dr. Amanda Waller was, before the Suicide Squad, was working for a congressman, a very progressive liberal congressman, and she discovered the existence of the Suicide Squad's classified files, and she decided to functionally bully Ronald Reagan into giving her a classified program. And he let her have a black ops team because she was so good at her job that he was worried she would stop his efforts to cut welfare. This is explicit. This is in the text. It's also worth noting that at this time, there were several government-tied storylines going on throughout the comics. You had storylines like The American Way going on in John Byrne's Superman comics, which explicitly had Superman confronting whether his loyalty was to America or to the world as a whole. You had the assassination attempt of Ronald Reagan commented on in Booster Gold's original series. And of course you had Justice League International, which was an explicitly United Nations sanctioned international Justice League team meant to speak to an authority higher than the U.S. government. The project of the DC Universe world building after Crisis on Infinite Earths was that most of the editors and writers had realized we have a rare opportunity here to expand our world building. We have a chance to ask these questions and sort of give our answers to them. And at the time, most of these books went for it. They explicitly wanted to talk about topics of the day, more so than arguably any comics had before. Which, again, seems rather goofy when just 10-15 years ago, the Comics Code Authority had each issue of Superman be about whether or not he was going to choose Lois or Lana. It's fascinating when people complain about politics in comics today because when you turn to this 1987 issue where Amanda Waller is functionally forcing Ronald Reagan to allow her, a lower class, middle-aged black woman, to have a black ops team under her personal command, it's just really fascinating to see this divergence, this kind of period of time where DC was willing to make comments about real presidents rather than using fictional versions, which can be read either way. It's also worth noting that the Suicide Squad ran from 1987 to 1992. Nowadays, that doesn't sound like the longest of runs. It's about five years. But the amount of effort that was put into this series and the amount of quality control led to it having a huge impact across several books, um, including some of its greatest creations. Of course, Amanda Waller, who has showed up in, I think, more DC 
uh, movies than any other character. She was even in the Ryan Reynolds Green Lantern movie. It's led to the creation of a team that has had two movie efforts, which is more than Justice League movies. It's also where the characterizations of many now prominent DC characters like Deadshot, like Ben Turner, Bronze Tiger, uh, even Vixen had a complete character revamp as a result of this team. But maybe one of the most impactful, especially um, if you are a Batman fan or a Gotham fan, would be Kim Yell's uh, seminal work in the creation of Oracle, Barbara Gordon, post The Killing Joke, and giving her a role that basically cemented her as one of the most intelligent and important characters in the DC universe as a as a paraplegic woman which was just not done the only other superhero in comics at that time who was ever wheelchair bound was Charles Xavier over at X-Men and his um his time as a paraplegic when he's allowed to be one is more of a commentary on how he's more powerful mentally due to his X-gene than it is a, a reach out to show progressive, like, a viewpoint on different lifestyles or different stations people have in life. Whereas Oracle and Barbara Gordon's story from 1987 to basically until 2011 was explicit commentary on the difficulties and challenges and uplifting uh, superheroics still capable of somebody who lived a full life as a as an able-bodied person and then uh, through tragedy through an incident uh, had to readjust her life to a lifestyle she was not familiar or prepared for. Yeah, and the story of Barbara Gordon is definitely one that deserves its own episode. The tale of the killing joke, the saga of the backstory that was happening in DC editorial while it was happening, all of that is completely worthy of its own ep episode at some point. As well as her reclamation, her the her reform her reforming as Oracle, not only here in Suicide Squad, but at the ha at the hands of Chuck Dixon and Gail Simone in in Birds of Prey. There are only really three characters who use wheelchairs, and two of them, Niles Calder of Doom Patrol and Charles Xavier of X-Men, like Brooke said, kind of are sporadically wheelchair-bound. But Barbara's disability was treated as permanent up until the DC reboot brought upon by Flashpoint that was the New 52, upon which she became younger and able-bodied again, which is something of significant controversy to this day and to current ongoing runs. And that is where we will end that topic. <laughs> so Suicide Squad, for all of its huge impact and for all of its continued success to this day, was still kind of a comedian's comedian in comics. 
the people who loved and appreciated it the most tended to be people that were already invested in the industry. It wasn't something that was going to attract a lot of people outside of it. And especially when you get into the early 90s and the beginnings of the comics boom, which, of course, we have referenced many a times, um, the big sellers at the time were not these sort of insular, uh, continuity reliant storylines, but were more of the extravagant, eye-catching, easily accessible stories that uh, would blow up. I feel the need to mention, Suicide Squad has aged a lot better than a bunch of those. (laughs) Absolutely. For every young blood and wildcat, the Suicide Squad is still known today. When you get down to the fundamental core of what the Suicide Squad is, it's kind of a great concept. You have this huge cast of characters and you have a bunch of villains and some of them are interesting, sympathetic, or even anti-heroes. And what better way to say, hey, like, we could just put all of them together. Like, that's just... It's clever, and it's good business sense, frankly. Like, who wouldn't want a book where, like, their favorite villains could just hang out together? Especially when you consider the fact, merchandise-wise, villains usually sell better than heroes. It's also one of those things where they hadn't figured out a good formula for keeping a villain-centric book on the market. In the 1970s, they tried desperately to uh, maximize on the Joker's success in the 1960s Batman series by giving him his own solo series. And they basically ran out of material halfway through the first issue. And it kind of limped to the finish line, uh, leaving pretty much no impact whatsoever. So... There was kind of no way, if you had a favorite supervillain, to see them consistently until the next time they were drawn out of the hat. Uh, to be the villain's punch, to be the superhero's punching bag for the next one to four issues. Because remember, this was back in the day before everything was a movie script. It's also like. You know, the 90s would bring alone around the rise of anti-heroes and vill- and just and anti-villains and characters like the Punisher and other similar people where they would be her- heroes or protagonists who were in conflict with other heroes. And so we would get more books like that. But the Suicide Squad was kind of the first one to crack the formula of how to keep these characters sympathetic. Although they, it was also unashamed of the fact that these were villains and they were sometimes just bad people. I mentioned Digger Harkness. Digger Harkness is, aka Captain Boomerang, is just loathsome. He's awful. Everyone on the team hates him. There's an entire issue where the entire team dresses up and pretends to be zombies just to screw with him because no one likes him. And it's just like a. Kind of, it is just kind of one of those things where it's uh, where you can have more sympathetic villains or bad guys, people like Deadshot, and you line them up alongside who are essentially just chaotic evil and just let them bounce off each other. And that was kind of what the great success of Suicide Squad was. 
you had a reason to follow these characters and to believe that they were forced together no matter how much they hated each other or clashed in their different worldviews because they had to stick together or else they died. Boom. And that was kind of what made and still makes that original run of Suicide Squad so just approachably interesting. This dichotomy of having a wide and varied cast, all of which who don't even have to like each other because there is a believable reason for them to still be working together. And it's all held together by Amanda Waller, who, unlike a lot of characters that are just created to sort of be the cause of your plot happening, she can withstand the burden because that's just the kind of character you believe she is. She's willpower incarnate. And even though she's a literal war criminal and is not a good person and is not going to pretend to be one, you love her for it anyway because she just is so convinced in her own righteousness, she almost convinces you along the way. You have to love anyone who is five foot one and can blackmail Batman. Like, you just have to love her. Like, just... How can you not? <laughs> After uh, 1992 and... Uh, the cancellation of the original Suicide Squad, they didn't really disband in comics themselves. They kind of went out, not necessarily on a high point. There was some quality issues, especially toward the latter half of the series, but they definitely went out with something they still had to say. And as a result, you kept seeing the Suicide Squad pop up in various other comic runs. Um, from everything from Superboy to Batman. They showed up throughout the 90s, although there was a severe underuse of Amanda Waller that I do have a theory about. Part of that is Amanda worked behind the scenes, so the idea was that most superheroes wouldn't know about her to begin with, because why would they? The other is that in 1997, Kim Yell passed from breast cancer that she had been fighting for the last several years. And since she and her partner, John Ostrander, were the driving forces behind Amanda's characterization, it's kind of uh, understandable that Amanda Waller was kind of her baby and she wasn't in a position to you know, um, sort of help people plot out, like, plans for Waller at that time. And no one wanted to do a disservice to her memory or to the amazing character she helps bring to the world, including Ostrander. So the general consensus, I think, might have been to let Amanda Waller, for a while at least, rest the way Kim had left her. The Suicide Squad wouldn't have its own book again until 2001, 
And this was a team that was written by Keith Giffen, who Steph and I have talked about before being big fans of. Now, Giffen is more known for his artistic talents than for his writing talents a lot of the time, but he very much is one of those who do both. And in um, the sense of the Suicide Squad, there's a sense that he's a huge fan, like a lot of people in industry were, of the original Ostrander and Yale Suicide Squad. But the 2001 run of this series is not one I have revisited a second time, mostly because... It's very early 2000s, which is still (laughs) very much uh, 90s adjacent for my taste. And there's a significant lack of Amanda Waller compared to what you would expect from a Suicide Squad book. Focusing more on Rick Lagg Jr. instead of Amanda. There's notable stuff that happened, and it definitely had repercussions at the time in other books, such as Robin where um, the death of Clue Master on one of the Suicide Squad's nominal suicide missions led to the supposed death of Arthur Brown, who is the father of Stephanie Brown, a.k.a. Spoiler. A.k.a. Robin, a.k.a. Batgirl. She's really just the Pokemon master of the Batfam. She just, she has to get all the titles. It's true. She's got to catch them all. She's also been Batwoman, just saying. And she might be Nightwing. Who knows? Um, we know. We know because we're huge notes. Uh, after the 2001 effort, which only ran for, I believe, six issues, um, the Suicide Squad in-universe was officially disbanded. And Amanda Waller would actually show up not involved with the Suicide Squad, but in what might be the weirdest, most awkward use of Amanda Waller of all time, which was the Lex Luthor presidential storyline going on throughout the DC Universe at the time. If you don't know this history, allow me to enlighten you. As commentary on the 2000 presidential election, which was very heated and very contentious, DC kind of mocked George W. Bush by having Lex Luthor run in-universe for the 2000 ticket, with a platform very similar to some things that the candidate was saying at the time, and joke on both the DC universe and real life is that uh, W won, so they had Lex Luthor win. (laughs) to be commentary on the Bush administration. This led to a lot of strangeness throughout the years uh, that culminated in the 2003 Superman-Batman series uh, initial run where called Public Enemies, where a lot of strange things happened. One of which is that Waller, who was from the start um, of his presidency, was uh, Secretary of Defense, was sexually assaulted by Lex Luthor in the in the second to last issue of the storyline where he just kind of grabbed her and forced her to a kiss and then alluded to the fact that they would have babies someday and Amanda Waller just kind of stared in horror and anger I really hope she killed him um she didn't have to Lex Luthor 
of a different universe kind of killed him later is an Infinite Crisis tie-in, so. Oh, right. Fair enough. Speaking of Infinite Crisis, Waller uh, was tied into that, not through the Suicide Squad, but through Gail Simone's various Secret Six series. If you've never read any of those, the Secret Six was actually funded by a mysterious benefactor they only knew as Mockingbird. I'll let you assume who that is. And move on. (laughs) Meanwhile, at the end of Infinite Crisis, Amanda Waller was brought in by the new president, President Horn, to be the White Queen of Checkmate. Checkmate is another DC spy organization which has a chess theme. Checkmate spins out into its own series by Greg Rucka. After all of this happened, there was actually a 2007 run of uh, Suicide Squad that ran alongside Checkmate. Which, if you read Checkmate, you would know would be a problem. Because as a member of Checkmate, Amanda Waller isn't supposed to have any involvement with other organizations. Yet, behind the scenes, Amanda Waller, at the same time Checkmate's going, is actually working on Suicide Squad from the Shadows. And this this run of Suicide Squad, while very short... It, it feels like an actual run-up and spiritual successor to the original 1987 series because John Ostrander had returned to the team for the first time uh, since uh, 1992. And it was also his first time since then writing Amanda himself. And it's honestly a lot of fun. It doesn't quite reach the depths and intrigue of the original series. I don't think it had enough time to really dig into stuff. And the way comics were written in the 80s versus how they were written in the later aughts is just a different beast. Um, But I do think it's very interesting, especially on the ways that it follows up a lot of the hanging threads from the 87 series. Uh, Bronze Tiger is back. Rick Flagg is somehow back didn't he die multiple times (laughs) and there's lots of things but it's still missing some of that oomph i think especially because floyd lawton at the time was not on the suicide squad he was on secret six which was also a fun series and the two um gail simone's secret six and ostrander's uh suicide squad they got to intersect um but you were definitely missing something just, you know, uh, by not having that initial chemistry between uh, Waller and Lawton, which was kind of essential to a lot of the developments in the 87 series. They hate each other, but they work so perfectly together. They also respect each other, which is an element I think a lot of, a lot of later books and other adapt and adaptations even really miss the fact that part of Amanda Waller's hold over the team isn't just literal blackmail it's the fact that they're they are a scared of her and b respect her they're not just scared of her because she's got a bomb in their heads they're like she is a terrifying lady she is she is your scariest elementary school teacher she she is she is Meryl Streep from the devil wears Prada All right, um, 
so we don't have a whole lot to say on the 2007 series. Like I said, it's, it's not as meaty as some of the other stuff. Um, but it's definitely a fun read if you have any affection towards the original. And by original, I mean 1987 team. And then comes the new 52. The new 52 for the unfamiliar. So in 2011... DC Comics came to the conclusion that their beloved, large, wide, 20-year history was just too hard. And their universe was just too diverse. Had too many women. Too many people of color. Too many disabled people. Not enough manly men being men and sexy babes. So they decided to reboot the universe and start everything over again. Continuity was a crapshoot. Internal communication was dead. And every and there were 52 storylines, thus the phrase, the new 52. I think it's also worth pointing out, um, several writers uh, that Steph and I respect, and even Steph and myself have mentioned before by 2011 there was a lot of there was a lot of fat to trim in the DC universe in general there were things that needed to be fixed the aqua family the aqua family needed fixing the aqua family wonder woman there was a lot of stu- a lot of properties that DC had not been as good at curating and protecting as they should have been uh, from 1985 on. And there needed to be something. I'm not sure an entire line-wide reboot was the necessary step, although they had had success with that before. That was the reason they did that. But there there was a lot of stuff that needed to be fixed, and they kind of needed a reason to reset it and get a lot of attention. And in that way, they did do that. Um, they, they certainly did that. They certainly did that. Now, part of the reason that we're apprehensive about the New 52 and reluctant to give it any accolades isn't just because we're crotchety people that liked the stuff before. There's stuff that we actually like from the New 52 um, better than their pre-boot counterparts. Again, Aqua Family. There was a lot of changes that I think were for the better. However, part of the reason that we're, we're harking on the New 52's decisions and a lot of the changes were made is because some of the changes that were made seemed almost exclusively made to um, alienate people. People that were included or who had a variety of taste were suddenly left homeless because nobody could have a different silhouette, for example. Every single character in the New 52 had the same basic silhouette. Part of that was because everybody was redesigned by Jim Lee, which means that um, there was basically only his house style to uh, to derive uh, characters from. The other part of that is that 
what characters didn't fit in that sort of cookie cutter uh, style guide that they started with were either changed to fit it or discluded entirely. And that leads us to what happened to the 2011 Suicide Squad. Suicide Squad 2011 was written by Adam Glass. It was not good vibes I was getting, and not the least of which was who was on the cover. Sexy Amanda Waller. This is not to say that Amanda Waller as a middle-aged, overweight, short black woman is not sexy. That is not to say that she is not allowed to have a sex life, that she is not an amazing, intriguing woman that deserves all the, go all the good things that a fictional war criminal deserves. But this is to say they made her young, they made her skinny, and they gave her a lot of tits and at poses. They also made her tall. They also made her tall. And they put her in cat suits. Cat suits, Brooke! They basically missed the point of why she was powerful, why she was interesting. And they basically, without saying it, they were basically telling the world that to be interesting, to be powerful, to have a place in society, someone has to be a supermodel. The one thing that the 2011 Suicide Squad gave us, besides lots of money, it, it, to be fair, um, it made lots of money from the people that were buying up New 52 books at the time. Um, the one thing it did give was the inexplicable tying of Harley Quinn to the squad rather than the Joker, which, to be fair... I don't like what they did with Harley on the team, but it did emancipate her from the Joker for basically the first time in 20 years. And it made her popular to be away from the Joker rather than the opposite, which I think DC actually learned from. It wasn't a great Harley Quinn. If you decide to go read New 52 Suicide Squad after this, for whatever reason, uh, do be aware uh, it uses a lot of not great language about mentally ill people or people with mental disabilities uh, throughout it. Kind of can be uncomfortable. And also, again, lots of tits and ass poses because New 52, that was basically the only pose they knew to draw women in. It might have the worst Harley costume of all time. It was not a good Harley costume. To the point I'm not entirely sure what they were going for. Um, sexy clown? Corset? That's about it. I think that's where, I think, I think that's where it ended. But, you know, we could, we could hark on the new 52 and a new 52 Suicide Squad all day. I could make a mixed trap of the noises I made while reading Sexy Amanda Waller. But the new 52 blessedly came to an end in 2016. 
with the return of somewhat continuity, if not explicit continuity, in the form of DC Rebirth, where basically DC said, listen, the parts you liked about the old stuff we'll bring back and we'll just try to take the new 52 stuff that you liked and we'll kind of just mix it all in together. And if you didn't like something from the new 52, don't worry about it. It's gone now. Don't worry. It didn't last long. <sighs> yeah. So DC Rebirth uh, came, brought with it a new Suicide Squad series. Um, I have mixed feelings on the Rebirth version of the team. I think one of its high points actually was in its drowned crossover with the Aquaman books which I thought was actually kind of a high point. It had Amanda's political knowledge and savvy in the forefront again because it was dealing with Atlantean turmoil along with American interests and imperialism kind of interfering with what would have been the coronation of Mira as queen of Atlantis and Arthur's desperate attempts to keep everything safe and on the down low uh, while kind of accidentally undermining everything his wife <laughs> is doing. <laughs> yeah, the first volume of it I found definitely an upgrade to the New 52 version. It had a much better Harley Quinn. It really played with the fact that Harley is, in fact, an incredibly intelligent woman and an incredibly good gymnast. Uh, really played with that. It had moments of empathy between members of the squad, which I thought was had been completely lacking in the New 52 thing. The one thing that I think Rebirth was kind of missing which is something that a lot of the runs we liked less had, was it tried to make Rick Flagg the main character instead of Amanda Waller. And I think that is just generally a really easy pit to fall into, having, like, because Rick Flagg is your man on the ground. But he's also, he's also just not interesting. That's the thing. He's just kind of the guy. He's, like, you don't make, like, you can make, in a comedy series, maybe your straight man is the main character. But he's just not interesting. He doesn't have anything. Well, he, you know, cares about his daddy's opinion. <laughs> Alright, so, uh, there have been versions since Rebirth. Uh, Tom Taylor did a run on suicide, uh, did a run that was also lacking Amanda Waller. Uh, did have Harley Quinn and Deadshot, though, as well as a whole bunch of new characters. Honestly, I'm a fan of, I'm a pretty, I'm a fan of that run. It was a decent run. Mm -hmm. We're just kind of skimming over it, though, because it just, it, because. It's so recent. It's so recent. And then currently, we had DC, there is a Infinite Frontier Suicide Squad, I guess is what we're calling it. That is currently running, coming out of DC Future State Suicide Squad. Suicide Squad has become a tentpole book of the DC universe, just because, like I said earlier, it's a genuinely good idea. Like, you have all these popular villains, and you can't use them all the time in, in Batman, so, you know, you, you can put them somewhere else. And that's kind of 
What brings us to our own dream teams for the Suicide Squad? Steph and I obviously are big fans of Suicide Squad and its potential. Just like people play who would you put on the Justice League, uh, there's kind of been this game of who would make an interesting team for the Suicide Squad? Who would Amanda Waller recruit that would be interesting? And I thought it would be kind of fun for uh, the two of us to try to put together a, what do you say, a six-person team? I know where one of yours is going. No, you don't. You're not putting Poison Ivy on there? I am putting Poison Ivy on there. <laughs> listen, listen, her girlfriend took her team from her, and I think that's unfair. <laughs> But yes, my my number one is Poison Ivy. I'm putting her on. <laughs> I'm going to put I'm going to put La- I'm going to put Floyd Lawton on there just because I do love him and Waller, and I also think he's just a really he's a great character in the book. And you know, I would love to see a version of him that brings in some of the elements that was that Simone introduced in Secret Six, aka his bisexuality. I would love to mm-hmm. see that addressed in a Suicide Squ- Squad book. He's he's a core member of the team for a reason, and I do really like it when he's there. Uh, for my second, I'm actually going to put someone who's never been on the squad, but is a uh, is a Superman villain. Ooh. Um, I think it would be interesting to have Livewire on there. Ooh. Um, because electricity-based powers are always interesting uh, to and can give you a lot of options. And it would be interesting to see somebody um, who is a villain, but isn't, like, the worst kind of villain, uh, having to deal with the fact that she's now put in this situation. I I think I'm going to jump over to the Aquaman books uh, for my next suggestion. I would really... I think uh, it would be really interesting to bring Black Manta into the play. Black Manta is kind of one of the most vicious villains in the DCU. He has, oh, by far. He ha- is, but he's also very clever. He is, uh, he's a genius who is able to create a version of Atlantean physiology he, to allow people to breathe underwater and survive the pressure and all of that stuff. And he's just kind of uh he i think his intelligence is underplayed and i think it'd be really interesting to see someone tackle that angle of him as a genius and taking him out of his element as it were that's a hard one to follow up i think my third and final choice i think i'm gonna have to go with digger (laughs) uh because you have to have someone on the team that's the heel that by comparison everybody else becomes somewhat likable and that's where Digger is best. I know way back when the very first time you were reading Suicide Squad and I had told you that I uh, I like having Captain Boomerang on the Suicide Squad and I like that character and you started reading it and you were like what is wrong with you as a person? <laughs> This is what I mean. He's such a good heel. You love to hate him. He is a good heel. I completely agree. And I I think I didn't understand why you were liking him until I got to the 
until I got to the issue I mentioned earlier where the entire team dresses up as zombies to screw with him. Like, when that happens, I'm like, oh, that's the appeal of a character like that. Yeah. So, I, I think you gotta have, I got just like you kind of have to have Floyd just because of the dynamics. You kind of have to have Digger because you gotta have someone, you gotta have someone that's there. I'd love to, which is, this is kind of very recent cut, but I'd love to see Emma Lord. Ooh. I'd love to see Liar Liar, to be honest. I just reread Lords and Liars by Mariko Tamaki, so that is definitely playing a part here. But Emma Duropolis, daughter of Maxwell Lord, as someone who but kind of would be like the, the, the token innocent of the team, someone who's caused a lot of damage but didn't really mean it, and this kind of, like, kind of a younger element who might, you know, potentially get to have some interesting dynamics with Waller and uh, Floyd Lawton, who has a daughter. Mm-hmm. And, like, so that would, like, just generally, I think, she would be bring an interesting dynamic to the team. And also Wonder Woman villain. And I think Wonder Woman villains should be in more things. I agree. All right. Well... I like our team. I think it's a fun team. I think we've got some. I think we've got some good stuff going on. Also, I think everyone would team up and bully Digger, and I think that's all indicator of a good team. Agreed. So that takes us into our comic recs for this week. Um, it's hard on this one to do a proper recs because I feel like what I want more than anything is to just have everybody who listened to this show go and read the Ostrander and Yale Suicide Squad from the eighties. But I also feel like that would be more than a little cheating to use this time around. So instead, I'm going to recommend one of its contemporaries and arguably actually one of its influences, even more than the Silver Age Suicide Squad. So uh, I'm going to recommend Mike W. Barr and Jim Aparo's Batman and the Outsiders, the original run from 1983 to 1987. Um, after being frustra- frustrated with the Justice League's unwillingness to, you know, act against the government's totalitarian ruler and uh, therefore um, disregard its nation's sovereignty in order to save Lucius Fox just because Bruce wanted them to, um, Batman quits and uh, goes about creating his own superhero team, which is more willing to perform the sorts of subver- subversive acts and work in the shadows in the way that um, other superhero teams really can't. Uh, in doing so, he creates the first incarnation of the Outsiders, a DC superhero group willing to bend rules and act questionably unheroic and against governments for the greater good. The original team consists of familiar faces such as Black Lightning, Katana, and Metamorpho, but also has members that are only now starting to see adaptations, uh, like the most recent season of animated Young Justice, um, Geoforce, and Halo. Um, Speaking of that season of Young Justice, it was actually even subtitled Outsiders because it took so many of its story beats from the original Batman and the Outsiders. Uh, This original series is dated in a way that many Bronze Age comics can be, but I think the premise actually still holds up pretty well. So well that it has actually had reincarnations over the years, using both the classic lineup and not. 
If you've never given the original stories a chance, I highly recommend trying them out, as even their goofier elements can be given an air of surprising thoughtfulness at times. And then other times, um, there's just mind-controlling vampires. <laughs> for a modern recommendation, I am going for a far less dark and gritty team book. And one of the comics I have been following for the longest time besides. Order of the Stick is a comic we gave a shout out to back during our Check Please episode as having a simplistic art style that made it easy for a short turnaround time. Running since 2003, the story that is still going is a tale of a Dungeons and Dragons adventuring party, a 3.5 edition, for, if that matters to anyone. This is a tale of these adventurers who are genre savvy, aware that they're in a comic and the tropes that they are participating in. Uh, they, but it's also clever, witty, and heartfelt. Uh, it, it, you know, being that old, the big early part of the story indulges in some stuff that is less great, particularly around sexism. Uh, but the story owns up to its faults in later arcs, uh, addresses them, and the writer and artist, Rich, uh, Rich Burlew, has been open and outspoken about the importance of issues since then, uh, particularly turning a character's joking bisexuality into an actual plot point, which was honestly very refreshing to see. Uh, if you are interested, uh, the first volume is Dungeon Crawling Fools, and it's a great place to start, or the whole thing is available for free online at giantip.com forward slash comics forward slash ootsh dot html. And that's all for this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to support our Patreon, you can find us at patreon.com slash yellowboxespodcast. Or you can leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. Those really help us reach more people. You can also subscribe or tell a friend to spread the word. If you've got an episode suggestion, want Dr. Waller to step on your face, or just really like comics, you can tweet us at yellowboxespod or email us at yellowboxespodcast at gmail.com. Special thanks to Kevin MacLib for the music that serves as our intro and outro. Feeling good. Thanks for listening. believe you made me say step amanda waller step on my face <laughs> i was actually there was like i was like i was 50 50 on whether or not you would catch yourself and stop or no, if you would actually was, go through with it i i, I saw it <laughs> i saw it and i was like god damn it brooklyn <laughs>